I don't know how this is going to go. I feel that way every Sunday. All right, I woke up at 4 this morning because I was so horrified to come preach. I mean, not horrified, but I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep because I was thinking about it. Because I'm never sure how it's going to go. You write it, and then you get up to do it, and you're just not sure what's going to happen. And that feeling of, I'm not sure how this is going to go, is probably one you can relate to. You probably felt that the first time you walked into the first day on a new job. You're like, I don't know. You've been through the candidating process. Maybe you had several interviews, and you're like, ooh, remember that feeling of nervousness? Maybe you've forgotten it. You've been in your job for so long that you're just used to it. But just remember what it was like that first time you walked in on that first day. Maybe you had a first date that you can immediately call to mind. You're like, ooh, I don't know how this is going to go. In the first few minutes, you're like, I don't know. Right, that feeling of uncertainty. Remember the first day of kindergarten? I remember grade two vividly. Right, I remember like, oh my gosh. I remember the first time I was uh, hosting live television. And when you host live television, it's not as common these days as it used to be. But um, there's a little red light on the camera. When that red light goes on, you are live. And in my case, I was live all across Canada and the United States. And I had never done it before. And there's nothing you can do. There's nowhere to hide when, boom, you're live. And it's just, you're on your feet and off you go. And I remember thinking, I was just like, just get to the first commercial break. <laughs> so I had like seven minutes right to get to the first commercial break. And that first commercial break, I just wanted to lie down in the fetal position. It was just really brutal. Maybe you've had a uh, major relational confrontation that's looming and you're just kind of putting it off because you're not sure how it's going to go. I'm not sure how this is going to go. I deal with this routinely when I'm trying to resist eating the last piece of key lime pie that's in the fridge. I'm like, I'm not sure how this is going to go. You know, it, does the pie talk to you as like it talks to me? We had guests over last night. And they said, you really are a pie person. You talk about pie a lot. And I say guilty as charged. This also, of course, is applicable and importantly so when you're considering rebuilding your life. Okay, you're looking at your life going, okay, I need to rebuild, but I'm not sure how this is going to go. How's this whole rebuilding my life thing going to go? Well, uh, Ezra chapter 5 this morning has some beautiful clues about how this whole rebuilding process that you are undertaking is going to go. I'm reading uh, out of the English Standard Version here. This is Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Yozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozenai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozenai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, 
who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, this was the prince of Judah, that was his Babylonian name, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter." Cool chapter. It's a uh, pretty historical chapter. If you were here last week and you kind of uh, worked with me as we kind of read that weird chapter 4 in Ezra, which starts in real time, then jumps to future time and kind of gives you an archetypal picture of the struggle that God's people are always dealing with before coming back to real time, it's nice to know that Ezra chapter 5 happens in the real time of our story. The uh, Jews are seeking to rebuild the temple. They've been at it for about 15 to 20 years by this point. And uh, the struggle continues. That is uh, very encouraging for you and me because there's a very good chance that in your life, the struggle continues. I want to tell you something about rebuilding your life that we see here illustrated in Ezra chapter 5. It is very clear from reading this chapter that rebuilding your life is a step-by-step journey. And this morning, I hope to show you that you will learn to be faithful on that step-by-step journey as you experience God's faithfulness along the way. The thing about step-by-step is it's hard. Can you identify? Don't we all want to just get there right away? We want to achieve the goal immediately. I'm very much wired this way. My wife, Nicole, is extremely wired this way. She's a person who wants everything done now. And if you've lived more than 12 years on the planet, you know that very rarely does something you want happen now. Step-by-step is difficult. So we have kind of two big ideas to ground our conversation this morning hoping that you will find these in the pages of Ezra chapter 5. One, 19 ways faithfulness is found along the way. So that's one of the big ideas here. I hope to show you 19 ways that faithfulness is found along the way. Or an alternate title, and I like this one better, might be 19 reasons to stick to a step-by-step approach to life even though it's annoying. Okay, so you can hang your head on that one. 19 reasons to stick to a step-by-step approach to life even though it's annoying. Reason number one, faithfulness is found along the way when God speaks. Okay, when he speaks, that's when faithfulness is found along the way. Because God speaks, that's a reason to put up with a step-by-step approach to life, even though it's annoying. How do we know that God speaks? Verse one, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews. Here's the point. God speaks. Sometimes God speaks through people. The dog is prophesying this morning. I was like, am I hearing things? It's totally okay. It won't throw me off. If it was a person barking, then I'd have to cast it out. (laughs) But it's just an animal, and God made animals, and he made all things good, so we'll live with it. God speaks. Sometimes he speaks through people. So here's the big idea. Listen to God if you want some help sticking to a step-by-step approach to life. Will that preach good in your heart? Listen to God. It's scary how often we forget to listen to God. And remember that you're not the boss, he is. 
We see this illustrated clearly in verse 1, part B. The prophets spoke in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here we see a picture, a very clear picture, that God is the one who's in authority. So point number two, faithfulness is found along the way when authority is God's business and submission is yours. What is the problem with this statement? Submission does not come easily to the human race. We're not very good at submission. Now, I don't want to beat this too hard. I don't want you to leave here feeling bad about this because you were made in the image and likeness of God. You were made to be kind of like God. Literally, in the book of Genesis, when we read that God made us in his image, in the Hebrew, it's Betzalamo, literally in his picture, like he took a selfie and you are the result. So that urge that you feel to be in charge, that urge that you feel to rule and reign is you imaging God himself. So I don't want you to leave here thinking that Pastor Todd said we all need to be a bunch of milk toasts. okay? That is not what the gospel teaches. You should move in authority. You should rule and reign in the spheres in which God has put you in. But you must do this always with the knee bent to the one who rules and reigns over all. Life works best when God is in charge. Put another way, a step-by-step approach to life only works if and when you get off the throne. Now, this may be more difficult for some of us than for others. I saw a funny meme online where it's kind of like me. It was a dude saying, like, cue the moment where I let all my control issues run amok as I refuse to let anyone else have anything to do with the Thanksgiving table. It's this picture of this, like, absolutely everything's perfect, and all those control freaks in the room said, amen. Right? And I'm trying not to look at you. (laughs) She's laughing loud. I was thinking about you, Blondie. Yes, I was. (laughs) You want a better life? Practice acting, sorry, practice not acting like God. Okay, you want a better life? Practice not acting like God. Uh, Instead, just get up and get to work. We see this uh, illustrated in verse number two. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Yozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, Supporting them. So faithfulness is found along the way when, point number three, you simply stand up and get to work. You can preach a whole sermon on this one verse. Stand up and get to work. I won't do it because I have 19 points to get through. But think about all that's involved in standing up. Think about what precedes knocking you to the ground, wherein you find yourself having to stand back up. Stand up and get to work. Simple point. A step-by-step life is active, it's not passive. So, if you find yourself in a season where you're just letting life happen to you, maybe receive some encouragement from the Bible this morning to stand back up and get to work. Put simply, do something. (laughs) Do something. Every time I see a picture that one of you posts on social of you doing something, I celebrate it along with you. Why? Because when we do something, what are we ultimately doing? We are ultimately imaging our creator God. Again, it's the image of God at work in the heart of humanity. You make things because God is a maker. You create things because God is creator. So do something, even if it means smoking bacon. I was just thinking about Eric's bacon that he makes around this time of year. Don't miss me. I'm waiting. I have a spot in my freezer. Right? Even making bacon can be done to the glory of God. Or if you really like smoked tofu, I'm sure that's okay too. God's grace is sufficient for you. Do something, but importantly, do it with joy. 
This is a really key point. Where do I get this whole joy thing from? I get it from verse 2. Then they arose and began to rebuild. The word began here is the clue to joy. Then they arose and began to begild. Vayashiru. Yashiru. In Hebrew, the root yashir is to sing. Vayashiru. Now, here the pronunciation of vayashiru is not exactly the same pronunciation you'd use if you were using it to say, this, to say the word sing. But I believe that the Lord knew that the day would come when an English preacher named Todd Cantillon, who's fluent in Hebrew, would come to this text and go, wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot at surface level reading like singing. And what do we usually do when we are singing? We are usually singing for joy. They resolved to build. Okay, the word is interpreted literally resolved. But if you take a little bit of lyrical um, wiggle room and apply it to the interpretation of this word, it's easy to see that your resolution works best, and you know this from life, which is why I can make the point, resolution works best when it is joyful. Point number four, faithfulness is found along the way when your resolution is joyful. How many of you know this exactly right? It is much easier to do something when you do it with joy than it is to do something from a place of misery. If you find yourself going through the motions of your daily life, you're going to work, you're working your job, you're coming home, you're making dinner, and you have lost your joy, you have a responsibility as one of God's people to slap yourself and wake up and get happy. And I think if you work at it, you can find joy in the simplest things. I think the challenge is for us to deprogram ourselves from our overly saturated, hyper-materialistic culture that says you can't be happy unless you have this, this, that, that, this, that, that, and that, and this, as well as that, this, and the other thing. Also, you have to be perfectly in shape with a six-pack and look like you didn't just roll out of bed, but you are ready for your photo shoot. I mean, this is the picture that so many of our peers and maybe some of us are buying into, and no wonder it's hard to be joyful because you're just making some craft dinner and trying to survive. The laundry hasn't been done in three days, your kids are running around screaming, and your life sucks. And so you're like, what do I have to be happy about? Well, if you think about it, if you reduce it down to the very basic level, craft dinner is pretty awesome. <laughs> you know? And if you've forgotten how awesome craft dinner is, there's at least a chance that you've forgotten your joy. Okay? Let your resolve be seeped in joy. Step by step works better when you have a joyful mindset. The scripture echoes this all throughout its pages. Now, I hope you're noticing, I'm not highlighting this, but every single point I'm making here is a point that is like echoing throughout the pages of scripture. I'm not like pulling some weird interpretation here that's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. I worked hard to make sure that each of these interpretive leaps are soundly grounded in the basic teaching of scripture. How can I say that a step-by-step -step approach works better when it, you have a joyful mindset? Because the Bible tells us in Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So look, if you uh, need a little more help, look to the word, which is what I just did. Verse 2b, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The word here, supporting, is bracing. They were bracing them. Point number five, faithfulness is found along the way when the word of God supports the people of God. Okay, so if you have forsaken the word of God... Do not be surprised if you found yourself living an unsupported life. 
The Word of God supports, it braces the people of God. How do we interact with the Word of God? First and foremost, who is the Word of God? The Word of God is first and foremost a person, not a collection of documents. The eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God, second member of the Trinity, God the Son who became the man Jesus. Okay, You can experience the Word of God as you experience the life of God in Christ. I wanted to just encourage you this week to examine the degree to which your devotion to Jesus is an actual and practical part of your daily rhythm. I was thinking about you driving up college. I just finished coaching a football game, and you popped into my mind. And I was thinking, I wonder if right now they are finding themselves devoted to Christ, working through the thing that they're doing to connect themselves to Jesus. Because you can find Jesus in the weirdest places. Because he is God the Son made flesh, who made everything that is, made them all good to ultimately bring him glory and to bring his people joy. So devote yourself to Jesus and experience the word of God. The word of God, of course, is also the written word of God. We believe that this collection of documents, known as our modern Bible, which is an assembly of the Jewish scriptures, which we've commonly called the Old Testament, and the New Testament, which are the Christian scriptures. So this Bible, we believe, contains the word of God. Some would say it is the word of God. I said to you right off the top, the reason I love the Bible is because it tells us the story of God and his people. These pages are alive with the word and the words of God himself. So if you want to connect yourself to God, connect yourself to your Bible. Again, I thought about you, and this is so often preaches like a duty, and I don't want it to come across that way, but if you are missing out on immersing yourself in the word of God as contained in the pages of the Bible on a daily basis, you are missing out on a huge factor that will support you as you seek to live a life that is actualized, positive, full of joy, and actually making a difference in the world. So often, so many Christians find themselves spiritually bankrupt because they haven't spent any time in the Word of God. You also experience the Word of God as his prophets prophesy it. Okay, these are prophets here who are prophesying the Word of God. We don't have as many biblical-style prophets working these days. My dad helped me understand this as a young man. He said, the Word of God is the fourth telling of God's word. It's the fourth telling of his word into the world. So when I preach, if I preach well, I am forth telling the word of God. So it's not surprising to me that often after a service, someone will come up to me and say, that was like you were preaching right to me. How is that? It's because God is inhabiting the preaching of his gospel about Jesus. What is happening in this moment can be prophetic as I forth tell the word of God into your life. You can also experience the forth told word of God in life. Right? As you experience the life of God at work in the life of the world, you can see the glory of God written in every tree that is now bursting into full fall color. Josh posted a picture of a tree waving in the wind, and there was no filter on it, and it was glorious. Why? Because God is glorious. That is the foretold word of God. Are you missing it? Are you so busy, so preoccupied, so stressed that you don't see the beauty and the glory and the word of God? If you need a little help with this whole step-by-step -step thing, look to the Word. Even if or when you have to live with a uh, temporal authority that you wouldn't necessarily choose. We see this highlighted in verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethabozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, saying, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also said, uh, What are the names of the men who are building this house? building. So what's happening here? The local government is driving them crazy. And somebody said, right? 
It's not the first time the local government has driven the people of God crazy. Point number six, faithfulness is found along the way even when the temporal reality you're dealing with isn't ideal. Okay, I want you to see through the non-ideal nature of the temporal reality you're dealing with by focusing on the fact that you're ultimately from somewhere else. You are ultimately the children of Zion. What is Zion? Zion is an archetypal name for Jerusalem, and we know that as God's people, your home is the new Jerusalem. So ultimately, you're not from here. So next time, the fact that your street hasn't been paved in years is stealing your joy. Maybe move through that and think about the fact that your real home is a place whose streets are paved with gold. You see, Christianity is not some airy-fairy concept that doesn't have legs in the real world. You know, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and follow instructions. Point number seven, uh, verse three. Who gave you a decree to build this house? It would be very easy here to miss the underlying truth. It looks to us like the temporal government is saying, who told you you could build this? By extension, you're not allowed to build this. Of course, we remember Ezra chapter one, verse one, what happened in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. You see, ultimately, the permission God's people have to rebuild their life does not lie vested in any temporal authority, but it lies vested in the authority of God himself. Right? You could have missed that point. Okay? It is God who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king, to issue the decree that allowed his people to return home and to begin the process of rebuilding. If you're trying to make a step-by-step -step approach work, remember, never forget that God is the one who is pulling the levers of history. So the point from this is simple. If he's the one who's pulling the levers of history, follow his instructions. Even if, point number eight, uh, you know, the main thing in your life is being attacked. You notice that it's the main thing in their life that's being attacked here in verse three? Who gave you a decree to build this house? Funny, right? How um, trouble always tends to go for the jugular. Aren't you sick of it? You have a vulnerability, you know about it, and when trouble comes into your life, it goes right for that vulnerability. People who say there is no such thing as real evil are, I think, lying. Because they don't want to admit it. Because if you admit that evil is real, then you know instinctively that the inverse is also real, that there must be a force of good in the world. Evil is real. It is loose in the world. It attacks the main thing in your life. If you want to sustain a step-by-step -step approach, even when the heart of the matter is at risk, remember, point number nine, faithfulness is found along the way when God is with you. Ultimately, only Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, is the answer to the problem of evil. He is the answer that you are looking for. We see this uh, highlighted and hinted at in verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and the people of the land did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. I want you to hear that the people of the land cannot stop the people of God. This is echoed beautifully in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Maybe it's time for you to get a little more bold in exercising your Christian authority as one of God's friends. Because you see, my friends, the gospel is true. God did become the man Jesus, and he did go to a cross where he suffered and died in your place for your sin. He really did pay the penalty for your sin and mine, and not just for us, but for the sins of the world. And he really died the death that we should have died. 
But because he was God, the Son made flesh, he really rose again on the third day. And in that great moment, he changed history forever. Because who had ever seen a man rise again from death? He rose victorious, defeating the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell once and for all. And after visiting with his friends and eating some meals and encouraging them, he ascended back to his father's right hand where he sat down in victory. That's where he sits right now interceding for you, which means he's your cheering section. You've heard me say it before, and I'll keep saying it until he comes. One day he'll get up from that seat to come back again to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. If God is for you, who can be against you? Step by step works when you're walking with Jesus. So, point number 10, keep working while the jury is still out. Isn't this what's happening in verse 5, part B? They're waiting for the letter to come back from Darius. The jury is still out. If you find yourself in a jury is still out phase in your life, the answer is to keep working even while the jury is still out. And point number 11, stake your hope on the fact that God truly is the greatest. This is prefigured in verse 8, part B, when they talk about the house of the great God. They got that exactly right. That is the house of the great God. God truly is the greatest. Remember that in your moments of trouble. And point number 12, remember that diligence and prosperity are inextricably linked. We see this in verse 8, part B. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Do not, I sometimes forget this. I'm a person who's leveraged more towards artistry, more towards performing well in the moment and less towards doing the diligent work to allow yourself to perform in the moment. Thankfully, I'm more mature now than I was in my 20s, so I perform better in the moment because I've gotten better at being diligent. If you are someone who is really good at being diligent, you are way ahead of the game because diligence and prosperity are inextricably linked. And no matter what happens, point number 13, remember who you are and what you are supposed to be doing. This is my favorite point in the whole sermon. They asked him, who are you? And I, ooh, it's a very Todd response. We are the servants of the God of heaven, and we are rebuilding the house. I thought about the movie, We Are Marshall. Did you ever see that movie? Great movie, right? In the midst of destruction and suffering, they know who they are, and they remember who they are. And in remembering who they are, they find their purpose again. Remember who you are and what you're supposed to be doing, keeping in mind that points number 14 and 15. Sin and death and consequence are real. This is what's outlined in verse 12 when they said, you know, our forefathers angered the God of heaven, so he sent them into deportation unto Nebuchadnezzar. Never forget that sin and death and consequence are real, and, you know, remember also that your Savior is real, and his name is not Cyrus, like in verse 13, his name is Jesus. And if, point number 16, as we see in verse 14, the prince of Judah even got his silverware back, remember this from week one? If the prince of Judah, Sheshbazar, even got his silverware back, I'm pretty sure that the Lord will restore to you the years that the locust has stolen out of Joel 2.25. And so, worship team, you can join me on stage because we're about to seal this with a kiss. Did you know that's what worship means? Proskuneo, to come close and kiss. That's why worship is never a waste of time. That's why all God's people should always participate in it. Because if God is real and he's expecting a kiss from you, I'm pretty sure that every chance you get, you should give him a big, wet, liquory kiss, in the words of the Goonies. Right? You come and you kiss the sun. So, point number 17, build your life on the Lord's command to rebuild. That's what happens in verse 15, part B. It's God who commands that you rebuild. Who are you to defy the command of God Most High? 
You may be looking at the wreckage of your life thinking this is impossible. God has commanded you to rebuild, so do it. Start, point 18. Never completely stop and accept that your life is a work in progress. That's what they say in verse 18. We started, we had some hiccups along the way. That's what we talked about last week, but we're still at it. The work is not yet complete. So, verses 16 through 17 as we close. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Ideally, I want to boil it down for you to this one thing. Point number 19. All that really matters in the end is the pleasure of the king. And it gives me great pleasure to tell you that our king has plans to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11, In a place where no one cries anymore or dies. Revelation 21, 4. In a city where everything has been renovated, where all things have been made new. Revelation 21, 5. Isn't it wonderful that that verse happens to fit this series so well? Behold, I make all things new. Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, our risen Lord, our soon-coming King and Savior, our dearest friend, is the ultimate renovator. He has built a city where all things are new. There's not even one crack in the foundation. So how's this um, thing called life going to go? Friends, it's going to go pretty great. As step by step, you learn to be faithful as you experience God's faithfulness along the way.